Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst, well, the busyness, the uncertainty and all the things that life throws at us, really. I'm Ali Hill and today's guest has an international background in business, psychology and coaching. She has spent time with Marion Williams, Richard Branson, as well as running courage building programs with organisations such as NASA, Shell, Deloitte, Morgan Stanley, Google, Salesforce and the UN. We spoke via Zoom across international waters as she's currently living in Singapore. She also has three children living in the US. And this provided a really fascinating perspective on living through a global pandemic with a global family. We also spoke the day after her husband had returned home, after he'd been quarantined for 30 days, uh, had been diagnosed and, and gone through the sickness of COVID-19. You will hear in her voice the excitement about having him back under her roof. Margie Worrell is a best-selling author and leadership authority who is passionate about emboldening people to live and lead more bravely. Margie has walked the path of courage many times since growing up in a dairy farm in rural Victoria. She's a best-selling author, sits on the advisory board of Forbes School of Business and Technology and has shared expertise with leading media outlets such as CNN, The Today Show, Bloomberg, as well as hosting her own Live Brave podcast. Margie shares stories from hard-won wisdom in her latest book, You've Got This, which is aptly named. It is a, a book for our times. In this conversation, we talk about our relationships with fear, why it's absolutely critical for you to doubt your doubts and tips on building confidence. Please soak up the wisdom that is Margie Worrell. Margie Worrell, lovely to be connecting with you. Oh, Ellie, it's so nice to see your face too. I know people can't see that listening to this, but I can. <laughs> it's beautiful to be hanging out with you. You've been, I've been wanting to do this for a long, long time and we've been trying to get into the same space and place, uh, but nothing like COVID-19 for us to go, well, actually, we couldn't have done that anyway, so let's just do it by Zoom. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's funny also with COVID-19 because people's calendars are so much easier to schedule with. It's not like, well, I'm busy then, I'm busy then, let's do, you know, 10 weeks from now, it's like, I am free next week and then one yeah. after and the one after. <laughs> I'm making the most of it. Don't you worry. I'm <laughs> connecting with people where, wherever I can. Um, so you're in Singapore and I'm sitting in a wardrobe in uh, the Gold Coast, but it is lovely to be connecting with you. We are at this time where we live in a world where the word positive has now become a negative uh, and negative has become a positive and you've had your own recent experience with COVID-19 um, with your husband actually contracting uh, the illness Yeah, and you've had a bit of a day of it today. Can you share what's happened today for you? Oh, well, actually it was yesterday, but uh, he... Uh, Yes, you are right. The word, the no, we, were, we were just literally holding my breath, hoping for a negative test result because he went into hospital, uh, was, yeah, 30 days ago, 31 days ago, and uh, with all of the symptoms of coronavirus, he'd just flown in from the USA where we're pretty sure that's where he got it. And, uh, and he went into hospital on Friday, Friday the 20th of March, actually. And, uh, and I, yeah, I didn't see him for 30 days. And, and he was pretty sick for about a week. And then he was in a quarantine facility here in Singapore because in Singapore, they won't let anyone out into the community until they have had two negative tests for the virus. And he just kept testing positive and positive and positive and positive. And, you know, he missed Easter and I was, it was, it was a bit of a bum. Um, and then finally, yes, in the last couple of days, he got two negative test results. And yesterday he finally came home, which was um, beautiful. I just don't even know. There was just so, it was, was just so special to have him home. And he was very happy to be outside of the little shoebox that he'd been, had to live in and eating chicken rice twice a day for a long, many, many weeks. And, um, and we kind of knew intellectually, he's got to get out eventually. Like he can't stay in isolation forever. And even though you intellectually know it, it just felt like this is going on forever. Yeah, I can imagine so, there would have been moments where it would have felt like 
what's the outcome and, and no doubt completely outside of your control, his control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was hard when he got sick because he, he was pretty laid flat for a week or so for a pretty fit guy. But I already had felt a bit like I was at capacity because I have three children in the USA right now through all this and one in one, one right in the middle of New York. And so, so you're really kind of using up a lot of your just dealing with that, you know, okay, it's all good. We're going to figure this out. It's all fine. And then when he, arrived back and within 24 hours was sick and I had a feeling it was I just had it I just had that intuitive feeling I think he's got this and I didn't kiss him which I usually do <laughs> I was like I'm just not going to kiss you and within 24 hours he had a fever and was and, and a sore throat and a cough and I was like okay and the second night I actually went and slept in another bed and uh thought okay and then he went off to the hospital and you know was gone for 30 days um, and thank, thank goodness, whether I got it and I was asymptomatic or I didn't get it, I don't know. Um, I actually had a blood test done this morning in Singapore by the Ministry of Health because they are really curious to know why I didn't get it. Yeah, so I, they're testing for antibodies, actually for my son too. Um, but fortunately, I've stayed in great health. Um, physically, I've stayed in great health. Mentally, emotionally, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, I think I've, I've, I've dealt with it as well as anyone could, but it has certainly been a challenging time. How did you, because I, I, I just can't imagine what it's like uh, for the people that we love the most when they're not well. Often our role is to be there, to care for them, to make the chicken soup, whatever it is, yeah. uh, but to not be able to do that, to not be able to go and visit him. What was that yeah. like for you? Yeah, it was hard. Um, it was hard because I was put into... Actually, even before he messaged me that, that Friday to say he tested positive, I got a call from the government, the Ministry of Health, saying, where are you? Hello, this is Mrs. Margaret Worrell. I was like, yes, it is. And I was like, where are you? I said, I'm in my apartment. And they said, okay, you must not leave your apartment. No one is to leave your apartment. I was like, okay. And then the next morning, these people rocked up in, you know, their have all masked up and gloved up and, and issued our quarantine order. And yet we couldn't set foot out of the apartment for 14 days, which was bizarre experience that in itself to live in, you know, and we don't live in a big house with a big backyard. We literally, we're in, we're in an apartment. We've got a balcony, but that's it. And uh, that was a weird experience. Um, not, and it's, I, here in Singapore, it's really humid and I do not, I just don't enjoy running in the humid, the heat here. And I walk sometimes, but I've actually taken to swimming and I've become a big swimmer. I'm not actually a great swimmer. I'm sure technically I'm a terrible probably swimmer. I never had many swim lessons, but I, I swim every morning. And I have to say, looking out at my pool every morning as it stared back at me longingly, that was really hard not to be able to go out and have a swim. That would have been a really, because it's such a sanity saver. It's just, for me, it just resets me, you know, body, mind, spirit. Um, and yeah, with Andrew being pretty sick too for that first week, he slept a lot. He had a fever. I mean, he was never super sick. I just want to be clear. He was never at death's door. It was never, oh my gosh, is this life and death? He was never like that, but it was still pretty unsettling. And yeah, and I obviously, all I could do was just focus on my own headspace and heart space and just get on with doing the most, doing the best I could. And the irony was this it all coincided with the launch of my new book when I was supposed to have been flying out to the US to do a, you know, this speaking book tour. And instead I was in Singapore in quarantine with Andrew in hospital. <laughs> was, you can't write that kind of <laughs> experience, can you? <laughs> I was supposed to be at a conference today, like in this parallel universe, I was supposed to be here and there and doing all these things. And of course, none of that was happening. And then, but, it, but, I, but just throw into the mix of bizarre and the surrealness of it all. So I had a publicist that was, had been working towards the launch of the book in You've Got This, um, which um, my new book's title, in the US. And so I, I wrote Forbes columns the day after Andrew was hospitalised. I just sat down. I was like, I actually just practice the things I talk about, which for me is writing in a journal. And I just realised like, you know what, I, have, I can't change a lot of things right now, how do I choose to show up in this time? Like, what is it, you know, what are the values I want to live by? What are the attributes of the person I want to be? And I'm like, how do I use this for the highest good as painful and awful as it is? And, um, you know, and allow myself to feel what I was feeling, but then 
just getting on with, well, what do I, what do I choose to do and who do I choose to be in the midst of this? And that, that really helped me because it's like, well, my own experience of this is maybe I, maybe something of, of sharing this experience and how I'm choosing to process it will be helpful. And I, I wrote a Forbes column that, that Saturday night and, um, when fear, when fear runs high, the need for courage runs higher. And the publicist in the US shared it out with CNN and, you know, different media. And then within 20, 48 hours, I had CNN saying, we want to interview you. So I was up in the wee hours of the night doing this CNN interview, which was pretty amazing and phenomenal to have that opportunity to do that in the midst of quarantine. And, and then CNN International wanted them to interview me. And so all of these bizarre things came all of a sudden out of nowhere. It was the whole thing was surreal. Um, and I just got on with it. And actually when it, once Andrew sort of picked up, I said, I just want to say thank you because I, I'm sure I wouldn't have been interviewed by CNN if my husband wasn't in hospital with Corona. <laughs> um, he's like, it's my pleasure to facilitate your opportunity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anything else I can do for you. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah, yeah, don't, yeah but um so it has been, and then of course I came out of quarantine, but within literally three hours, the government in Singapore announced this 28 day lockdown and went hardcore and literally closed the pool that I got oh, in no. and had like, had like three swim. <laughs> and they, I did. I'm glad I swam fast and far too, because then they closed it. And so now I'm, we're back in this 28 day lockdown where there's no pools, there's no gyms, there's no nothing to go to. And so Andrew came out yesterday and I laughed and I said, well, I just want you to know the world you're coming out to is not the world you left. It's, it's not particularly exciting. There's nowhere to go. There's no people to see. You're not allowed to see anyone. Can't even walk with anyone except the people in your family. And he said, honey, I don't care. I just want to get home. I'm like, I don't mind that we're not going out to dinner. I don't mind. I just want to go home. But he would quite like the pool to be open too. So anyway. so It's funny how we, um, and I think we will come out of this by those small things in life, those small experiences that we'll see in different different lights and different ways, whether it's the swimming pools or uh, yeah. giving our friends a hug, those kinds of things. I think it's gonna be yeah. Fun. Yeah. It was funny just yesterday. I was hugging him a lot, like hugging a lot, kissing a lot. And I hopefully no one minds me saying that my kids, I'm just picturing them now going, Oh my God, no, we so don't want to hear that. We so don't want to hear that. That sounds just as disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I was like, well, my son, Ben, who's here with me, he's given me some hugs. He's this lovely 18 year old young man, but you know, you know, mum, I'll give you the occasional hug, but you know, there's only so much hugging he wants to do with his mother. And, um, and I usually have to kind of beg a little bit, but, um, it was just nice touch again. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I need yeah, a hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll soak yeah. all of that up for sure. And how about your kids in the U S how are you dealing with that? Cause I imagine that's also part of, um, what's mm. in your thinking and in your day to day. Yeah. And what well, this is an interesting one, probably for most people who'll be listening. So we had moved, we lived in the US, just to give everyone a little context here, because I'm sure there's people going, why on earth, what's happening? Why would your children not be with you, etc." So we lived in America for 11 years. And from when our kids were little, 2001 through to 2012, then we moved back to Australia and Andrew was told, you'll only be here a few years and then we'll be moving you back to America with his company. But his company, um, a large American uh, multinational doesn't necessarily put a ton of value on family. And uh, we, we had moved, we thought we were moving back. And so we sent our oldest two children, two consecutive years back to the US because we, we, we were following, we'll be following in a year, we'll be following in a year. And they're like, well, we want to go to them to college in the US. And we're like, yeah, let's get us, we all just want the family on one continent. So we sent them back ahead of us because we're following, we're following. And then in 2017, uh, anyone who, who follows me might know this because I've, I've written about it, but is it suddenly um, and talked about it, he got a call and they said, no, we want you. Actually, he called me. He was in, in there in, in America and said, actually, they want me to move to Singapore. And I remember at the time, like, holy fuck, this is so not what the plan was. You know, I just was so upset, to be honest. I was really, I was so upset about that. But I just didn't feel we had a lot of, well, we didn't have a lot of choice. Just in the short term, we didn't have much choice. And so we moved here in 2017. And uh, so that was 
tough, to be honest. It was really tough because there's, there's a lot of great things about Singapore. And honestly, I do enjoy many aspects of living here, but I did not want to move to Singapore. <laughs> um, and we moved here, but we had a really hard time with getting kids in schools at short notice, et cetera, et cetera. And my youngest hated it, absolutely hated it. It was miserable for a year. He was 14 and turned 15. And so then he begged and pleaded, can I please go off to boarding school in America to this military boarding school? He's really into all that. So he went off there. And uh, so we've, We've had, without, I don't even want to get into more details of it, but we've just had, we kept thinking we're going to be moving, we're going to be moving. And then they decided actually that they didn't want to do, they said, Andrew, we're not probably going to move you back to the US now. So we're in this really difficult situation now where we have three kids in America, one here who's about to finish high school. And um, it's been challenging. It's been really challenging. And so, you know, I'm, I've been busy looking at pathways to get back to the US. I want to be on the same continent as my kids. We couldn't bring them to Singapore during this pandemic because they cannot get visas to come in. Um, Singapore's closed its borders. So we couldn't bring them here. Um, we couldn't go, we can't go back to Australia without, we don't actually have a home there and two weeks in hotels in the mandatory quarantine. So we're sort of a little bit stuck right now with our situation. So... Just to, I share that for context for people because we are, it's, the kids have been living away from us for a while. They're amazing kids. I am blessed with four incredible children. And because of our life and moving around, they're also incredibly self-reliant, very independent, um, pretty cool kid, very resilient, adaptable. So they've all been, I mean, their anxiety levels are like, like at zero. They're all like, yeah. it's all good, it's all good. Um, they're, all, they're all really happy. Lachlan, my oldest, really wanted to stay in New York. He studies social work and is really interested. I mean, his passion in life is supporting those who are underprivileged. And he just said, I don't want to leave New York during this time. I really want to stay. Not that he can do anything useful at this point. But he lives with a few um, really good friends in an apartment. And I just think he wanted to just, he really wanted to bear witness to what's happening in New York in New York and didn't want to leave it and go to a friend's lovely house in the suburbs or, you know, somewhere else. So he's there. And my daughter's Maddie's fantastic with a friend and my other son, Matthew, he's in a big ranch in Southern Colorado, um, out herding cattle every day in between his virtual classes. So we're all getting by just fine um it is a different and weird circumstance i have to obviously um and my kids you know thank god for technology ellie you know we video chat a lot and uh and we've had beautiful conversations and we're connected and the quality of our connection actually has always been pretty high ever since they move away you're very very intentional when your kids i work extremely intentional in our relationships um, we talk a lot all the time. And so so our relationships continue to be really emotionally intimate and wonderful and a lot of love, even though we're not all under the one roof. So they're all I, doing really, really well. And I think sometimes, like our role as parents, as hard as it can be, is to give our kids wings. And, and part of what you're describing is that, yeah, they're, they're having their experience and they'll come through 2020 with their own Yep. stories and pathways and all of that which will be yeah, and and yeah and I, I i just from a parenting perspective obviously i've got my philosophy on parenting but i i feel as a parent as my parents gave me deep deep roots a sense of belonging um and 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 strong wings go and pursue whatever it is that sets your heart on fire and it does not have to be close to me like it'd be lovely if it was obviously we've had a pretty global family um from just from all the moves around so my kids very much see the world as their oyster you know they 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 love australia they're all australian citizens my youngest is a dual citizen but um but they sort of see the world as where they will it's not necessarily like oh we want to stay in Melbourne or grow up in Melbourne. You know, they know all the virtues of Australia, but um, Maddie really wants to work in television and entertainment. So New York is a great place for her to be. And she's been doing an internship, which has obviously ended right now, but just working in television and media. And, and so I love that we've been able to help facilitate them having those experiences that were not even in my imagination at I just was just outside of anything that was possible. I was the first person in my family to go to university, much less to have gone overseas for university. But um, I, 
I think it's a Rumi quote that, you know, our children, we are the bows from which we set our children forth in the world. They are not ours. They are, the, they are life's longing for itself. And, and that's sort of how I see my role as a parent is just dream really big and I'll support you in any way I can to do what it is that, that, that sets your heart on fire. And, and let's, and, and that's it. You don't have to stay close to me. I would never want to put a guilt thing on them. Oh, you can't move away. You, I won't see you as much. I, I, you know, that's, that I don't think that's fair on our children. If, um, if, if them pursuing whatever their calling is happens to have them be moving away. We can make it, make it work. I want to talk a bit about your book, your latest book that you mentioned before. You've got this. The timing of this book and even the, uh, the name of this book um, is not something you could have planned around a global pandemic, but certainly a phrase that all of us, uh, I think, can, can be of value for us to remember. What was the impetus to write this book? Why this book and why, why now? Two reasons. So this book started out as a book I was writing purely for women in the beginning. And it was uh, because in, in the work that I do, just like in yours, Ellie, I, well, I do a lot of work in the corporate space, you know, speaking at conferences and running programs for companies and obviously mixed gender and sometimes, you know, more, more, more men in a room than women. But more and more, I had so many women would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I so needed to hear what you had to say. Do you do other things? And then I started running my Live Brave Women's Weekends about five years ago in Australia initially. And, and just so often I found that women doubt themselves too much and back themselves too little. That as women, we tend to second guess ourselves so much more often than the men we share our lives with. We don't value our strengths as much. We struggle more, in my experience, more with this sense of unworthiness and undeservingness. And that imposter syndrome, well, I know men experience it too, just like, oh, who am I to do that? Or who am I to even want to be that person? And so, so often I found myself expressing some sentiment of you've got this or yes, you can or you totally can. And I know for me, going back, I grew up on a small dairy farm in East Gippsland in Victoria. And for me growing up, you know, leaving home, going to university, it was all just like, oh, could I go to university? Only really smart people should go to university or it's only smart and rich kids go to good university. Like I had all of these beliefs and then I got there and realised you don't have to be that smart. And and thank, thankfully for the way Australian government, I didn't, didn't cost anything back then when I went to university. And my, my, I should just say my dad milked cows for 50 years and raised seven kids. There wasn't, there was very, very little money growing up. And so... So for me, when I think of me, even in my 20s, if the one thing that I, I, if I could look, go back and whisper in my ear as an 18, 20, 22-year-old, it would have been, you can, do, you can do whatever you set your mind to. If you really want to do it, you know, if your passion's there, you can do anything. And I didn't, I never even occurred to me that I could do those. Like it just, my, my world and my horizons and my ambitions were so hemmed in by, frankly, the social culture and the context that I'd grown up in. Um, my mum, you know, never, well, she'd been a nun then met dad and then had seven kids. And so it was a very, my horizons didn't extend very far. But while, you know, that was my unique story, I often met women who I felt the biggest barrier they had was their own belief in what was possible for them. So it started out being a book for women. And uh, given I work so much in that space, but then I had numerous encounters with men who really found themselves in tough places. And while men, I think, express it differently, men often put on the, you know, they have to prove they're strong and it's sort of bravado and we know the toxic masculinity. I thought, you know, I think men actually deep down have a deep, deep sense of inadequacy as well. Many do, not all of them, or they haven't if they haven't done their work. And so I decided it wouldn't be a book just for women. It would be a book for men and women. And I had obviously the two chapters in there catering for men and women. But then, of course, life happened with me and the whole move to Singapore and all of the tough situations I've had in the last few years. And I've had to remind myself, I've got this. You know, my world's turned on its head and I know I'm capable and I know I'm, I know I've, I know there's lots of things I can do, but man, the levels of uncertainty that I've had to deal with in the last few years have been pretty acute with kids living on one part of the world, 
the tracks back to the US being the ones that we thought were there weren't there, and to find new ways. I just There's just been a lot of challenges. And so I've had to really walk my own talk, but not necessarily going out and let me go and believe that I can climb the mountain and I've got this, but more how do we, how do we deal with life when the rug gets pulled out from beneath us and the floor gets pulled out from beneath the rug and we're going, holy shit, and we feel really ungrounded. And so part of the book is also about, in the latter chapters particularly, how do we have faith in ourselves that we've got this, even when we've got no idea what the future holds? And that is obviously so relevant to this moment in history that will go down forever. I mean, this, this is, you know, not just a, a blip. This is such a significant event in humankind right now. So many people feel like the rug's been, out, been pulled out from beneath them and the floor beneath that and the world beneath that and we feel really ungrounded because the world we thought as it was is not as it is going to be and and it's so the concept one of the concepts i wrote about ellie in there is this idea of grounding ourselves in self-certainty and i've had to do that a lot in the last couple of years i don't know what the future holds there isn't a clear plan uh, I, you know i'm living here in singapore but it's not really home home i don't have a home i <laughs> don't own a car don't have a home anymore we sold our home in australia so feeling a little bit home like a little bit homeless a little bit just a little bit not anchored not grounded i don't have you know just and it's and, funny how those things like a home a car yep like we almost hold on to them as don't own a home don't own a don't own a car don't have anything of the things that i did a few years ago when we had two cars and a nice home and you know and like all of that's gone and it's only it is physical stuff but it gives you this sort of physical anchoring and and so that's been really that was confronting and where i came from a lot of just really sitting with myself and doing the inner work that i think living a Living, a, living our lives requires as we go through life storms is grounding myself in my innate faith that whatever happens, I can handle it. I have everything it takes to meet each moment as it arises. While I'd love to know what the future holds, there is no certainty. I can't know. And I just have to show up based anchoring myself to the values that I want to live by and the attributes of the person I want to be. And that's been my last couple of years. And so obviously the last month, has been a never like let's dial that up again have you really got this let's just check your theory on being grounded <laughs> in self-certainty is working margie let's just make it even more seismic for you um maybe it's your I, graduation maybe yeah, I like, yes, maybe that was my graduation ceremony but you know what i really feel like i passed the test <laughs> and and like, I think if anything, I wrote this in a recent blog, you know, I've, I had to put my own, walk my own talk and really follow my own advice. But the good thing about that is it's, I've, I can honestly say it's solid because when we, when everything around us so much is out of our control and so much is uncertain and we look within ourselves for the certainty that we're seeking and for the security that we're seeking, you know, and even income-wise, you and I talked about this before we started recording, my income's just gone. And, you know, I've got some, we've got some hefty outgoings with kids' tuition, um, American dollars in the USA, pretty hefty outgoings. And it's suddenly like, ah, ah, okay. Yeah. Um, and I've just, Margie, look within, just look within. And, uh, and so... I know we will figure this out. I just know we will figure this out. And it that takes away so much stress because we the stress we create, Ellie, as you know, I mean, you know all this, we create the stress in our own heads by our fear that we don't have, that we won't be able to, to, to deal with what's coming. And when you have faith in yourself, and the book obviously that the subtitle is The Life-Changing Power of Trusting Yourself, when you trust in yourself and have faith in yourself that whatever happens, I can handle it, whatever happens, I can handle it, then that transforms your experience of life and that totally liberates what's possible. This book is such a, such a gift um, and we'll put all the links and I would encourage anyone to look at it. The thing that kind of smacked me as I uh, went through it is that um, oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen it, there can be some of these kind of platitudes that... Um, 
it'll be okay and it's a very surface level but this book comes in um, with the, the same way that you're describing that we have got this but it's not about ignoring the sense of uncertainty it's not ignoring that actually I would have preferred it to not happen I would have preferred not to have these high outgoings and lose my income but even in that uncertainty there's still something to hold on to and each um, you know, so much about this book is that encouragement just to keep coming back, even from the very first line, I've written it down here, but that your very first line is sometimes we have to be braver than we want to be. And I'm like, really, do we have to be? Yeah. <laughs> us to do that right now, right? I'd yeah. love to have a chat with you about fear. And you've mentioned mm -hmm. it a couple of times because I think it is the thing that holds us back from the people person we want to be the things that we want to chase what's your relationship with fear hmm. we go a long way back fear and i <laughs> um yeah we have we've we've enjoyed a long a long relationship and a love a love hate relationship and uh and i know we will we will continue to walk by each other's side until my parting breath um, what I know about fear is I wouldn't be any of the person I am today if I hadn't had such a close, intimate relationship with fear. And over the years, I always, I, I, I think I read about this in a previous book, you know, we've all got those little fearful voices in our head. Who are you to do that? You're not good enough. What will people say? What if you fail? Oh my God, you're totally, you're, you're deluding yourself. Um, and I always say, give them a name. And I gave mine a name, my, my small poppy committee um, years ago, because my small poppy committee is terrified of me sticking my neck out, daring to be more, do more, become more and being cut down is uh, with that tall poppy syndrome, having grown up very much impacted by that tall poppy syndrome. Don't dare to be anything too much. And um, And yet I know for me only by defying that voice those voices, and in obviously chapter two, it's doubt your doubts, defy your doubts. Only by every worthwhile thing I have ever done in my life, from go to university, to um, travel around the world backpacking, to um, moving to Papua New Guinea a year into being married, to having my fourth child, that was that was definitely an act of courage. Like, oh my God, can I can I raise four kids while pursuing a career that really calls to me? Uh, do I have what it takes? Because the fear was like, no, you freaking can't. How can you possibly be a good mother and um, and have a career? Because uh, I had zero role models, zero. I did not know one woman with more than three children who had a career. And admittedly, maybe my world wasn't very big, but I didn't know people like the MRIs X of the world. I didn't know anyone who had more than three children who had a career. And... And that was an act of courage. Having my fourth child was very much an act of courage. And so all of the work, writing my first book, starting a podcast, everything, you know, all of those things, every book has actually been that. And it's been defying the doubts and the little voice. It's like, who are you to do that? You don't have what it takes and doing it anyway. And so, so I don't think that voice is ever going to go away, Ellie. I think the voice will always be there. I think what shifts, what shifts and what continues to shift is that I have got better at taking back the power that I used to just give it to it without even realising I was giving it to it and, and really operating from a place of choice. Who do I choose to be? What do I choose to do? And I'm going to take the risk. And I would rather look back on my deathbed and go, you gave it a go. Maybe you fell short, didn't do the best job, but you gave it a go. Then you didn't have the guts to try because you were too scared you wouldn't be good enough and that you would make a fool of yourself and people would go, oh, who does she think she is? I love you uh, talking about that we need to doubt our doubts. Uh, those... those um and, and in the book, you actually pose a couple of questions to your doubts, things that we should, it's almost like you're interrogating those yeah. doubts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you share some of those questions or those, the way that you would interrogate your doubts if they come up? Yeah, well, I, I think, and I think, I think, I know there were six questions and I can't remember all six off the top of my head, but, but I know one of them was, was, you know, how do you know it's true to start with? You know, this we, we, we buy into our doubts like they're the truth. You're not good enough. Well, how do I know I'm not good enough? Um, and, you know, what will people say? Well, who, who's, what, who, who's, who are we even talking about here anyway? 
um, who could you be without this doubt? Like if you didn't ever have that doubt again that you're not going to be good enough to do something, what would be possible for you if this doubt didn't exist, if you could, you know, vanquish it from your head? Well, man, if I didn't think I couldn't be good enough, then I could be amazing. You know, then I would start doing this or I would change this or I'd go after this. And, and also getting present to what's it costing you if you keep holding on to this doubt, if you keep buying into this doubt as the truth, what is this costing you? And, and I, know, I know so many people pay a steep, steep price for living, letting their doubt call the shots, for letting that doubt be what runs their lives. And on my Live Brave weekends, I do, I do a whole lot of kind of different exercises and get people to visualise, you know, that what they really want to create. But what, what is it that they're going to possibly regret if they don't be braver, you know, if they don't defy their fears. And often when we get really present to the price we will pay in our lives when we let doubt call the shots, that's a pretty terrifying price. It's like that the greatest tragedy is going to your grave with the song in you going, I never dared to back myself. I was too freaking scared. And so people stay in relationships that leave them lonely. They stay in jobs they're not happy with. They stay... They stick with things they don't like or they don't go after a dream that really speaks to them. And, uh, and actually there was a, a woman, Brenda Kane, came to one of my early Live Brave weekends and she, she had been for seven years, she'd really wanted to have her own active wear for larger size women. And I wrote about that in the book and she was terrified because she didn't know anything about retail or active wear, anything on any step of the thing. And she just, she left that weekend saying, I just don't want to go to my grave wondering what if I had tried. And I think there's so much power in that to just go, what if I gave myself permission to just try? Um, and that comes to your sense of daring and boldness. And you talk about this quite a bit as well to move on from your kind of doubts to go, what, what could you dare? I had a question here that I was going to ask you, but I'm going to change the question. The question was going to be, have you ever dared to do something and failed? Not yep. even just a little bit, but, yeah. but a seismic fail. I'm assuming the answer is probably going to be yes, because when you dare enough things to you know, fall through yeah. the crack. Yeah. But let me change the question by what have you dared to do? and maybe found an opportunity that you never thought was possible or something surprised you by something that you dared, dared to do? Is there anything that kind of comes to mind? Oh, look, so many, so many, I mean, so every, oh, don't even know where to start here. <laughs> I'm like, so, 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 where do I go? Almost every great thing that I've had going on in my life now, I can trace it back to me doing something daring. So, for instance, you know, when I first started out speaking, I was living in Dallas, Texas. I had four kids under the age of six and I started a coaching business and I knew no one in the whole of, I, I mean, besides a few mums in my neighbourhood, I knew no one in America because I had been a stay-at-home mum with little children and had a fourth child in the US. But I really wanted to launch, I really wanted to be coaching. That was my initial vision. I want to be a coach. And, um, and, but I didn't, but no one knew me. So how, were you, how do you get coaching clients if no one even knows you? And you have no way of showing value. I had no networks, no professional networks. I was just known as a stay-at-home mum with four kids. And so I went out and gave some talks. I met, my first one was at my kids' preschool. And I put a thing up. It was going to be for working mums and work-life balance. And none, none of them came because they're so tired at the end of their working day. They didn't want to go back to the kids' preschool for a talk. So... You know, my marketing strategy wasn't good. Um, I had the two people that came with the woman who ran the preschool and the cleaning lady who also cooked the kids' lunches. So, like, literally, that was my audience for my first ever talk. Um, but then other people, slowly over time it built, and then someone, you know, and I do all these free talks at local women's groups and local this and local that. And then someone there was from Accenture and said, oh, could you come and speak at Accenture? And I went and spoke at Accenture. And then they said, oh, how much do you charge to do another one of these? And I was like, oh. I could be to do this. I was like, I felt like that was like Austin Powell's. I was like, $200, you know, I was like, how's $200? And they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. I was like, oh, maybe I could have asked more. Anyway, so I, but, but then that led to me doing like coaching with Accenture for about five years or a ton of coaching clients. But 
I also think back to um, writing my first book when I, I went to a school with 15 kids in it. So I didn't, whatever lessons there were on grammar, I never learned any of them. Hardly knew where apostrophe went. And I felt very deficient as a, in my literary skills. And, but I was passionate about what I wanted to write about, but I was never someone who wanted to be a writer. Elizabeth Gilbert always wanted to write. I never wanted to, to be a writer. Um, I just wanted to put into words what I was passionate about. And I wrote that book and I had to self-publish it because I wasn't no name, nobody. There wasn't even social media around back then. Well, I wasn't on it. This is what, 2006, 2007. And then, um, I sent it out to every big publishing house saying, I would really love it to be picked up. And after a million rejections, I finally, McGraw-Hill said, oh, we love this book. Can we buy the international rights to it? Well, then that landed me on the Today Show in, in Rockefeller Plaza and, and in America. Then I did a lot of, of media with the, with the big cable networks and morning shows. And, but all of that came from writing a book that I didn't really feel I was equipped to write. And so... So, so many things have come, if I can trace it back, it was me daring to do something, even though I was terrified I'd be inadequate for it. Um, but there's just pretty much every example I can think of, Ellie, is traces back to something. And, and to anyone who, I mean, whoever's listening, people who are obviously in different spheres and professions, not everything paid off. There was millions of times I did things and it didn't land in an interview or the Today Show or a book deal or something. And you don't always know which ones are going to land, right? You've got to plant a million seeds, even moving to Singapore. Suddenly I'm like, here I go again, a third continent starting over. I don't have a network, but I kind of built up more of a global network. I mean, and then by now we have, we have LinkedIn and Facebook and everything. And you go out and you do a hundred coffees as I would have done in my first few months. And not every coffee leads to something, you know, maybe 90 of them didn't go anywhere, but 10 of them led to something else that led to something else that led to then opportunities to then start working with organizations here and and so i would just say to people you don't know which which of your efforts which seeds you're planting are going to turn into something you have to plant a lot but over time momentum builds and i think the hardest part is being patient and also getting the feedback as you go along on well how could i do that better you know, like my first talk, I'm sure, was not very good. I had copious amounts of notes. I was so nervous to my audience of two. But the cleaning um, lady thought it was amazing, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think just giving ourselves permission not to be brilliant at things and, and, and I'm, you know, I still have to do that, obviously, well, not at the moment, but now I'll obviously speak to lots and lots of far, far bigger audiences in the thousands. People go, oh, you're amazing. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you. I'm always very aware of all the things I didn't do so well. I might, I, I still have to reel in that harsh critic in my head. But I, you don't become proficient at something the first time. You have to do the lousy first draft as, as what is it, um, Annie Lamott wrote in her book, Bird by Bird. Great book for anyone to read if you're aspiring to be a writer. Bird by Bird, do a lousy first draft or a shitty first draft, she says, and then do a second shitty, slightly less shitty second draft and then you'll get to a good draft. But none of us are going to be great starting out. We have to take the risk. We have to be daring and, and to back ourselves, really placing a bet on ourselves. So brilliant. And I think it's just that, that the art of still showing up. You talk a little bit about using your gifts. And one of the things I've found in the conversations that, um, that I've had with, with women and, and connecting in a whole range of different spheres, whether it's gifts or values or talents, um, is that question of what if I don't know what's important to me or how do I find out what I'm good at? Do you have any um, ideas or suggestions or things that you've recommended for people through your yeah. uh, being brave weekends? Where, yeah. where do you even start to discover what your talents yeah. are? Yeah, I, I actually go, well, as, as you know, there's a, there's a chapter in You've Got This on Trust Your Gifts. Um, and in my, in my book, Make Your Mark, which was more of a guidebook that people had to fill in all the answers on, that's a really good one to someone feeling stuck because it sort of takes people through a process more. 
but we are all gifted. And some people, you, it's easy to get caught up in negative comparisons, Ellie. I'm sure you've done this. I have done it. Oh, I've Where I look, done it. I, I look I it this morning. <laughs> okay. I look over at Elizabeth Gilbert and go, oh my God, she's such a good writer. I look at Brene Brown and go, oh my God, she's so articulate in how she expresses those concepts. Oh, I look at Emma Isaacs and go, oh, she's such an amazing entrepreneur. Or, you know, you look at other people and you go, oh, they're so good at that. <laughs> and I'm not so good at that. And when we, when every moment we spend our spend comparing ourselves to someone else is a moment that we are not getting on with making the best of our gifts and our unique combination of gifts and and i and i think it's just such an i i and i get i find myself there i have been there many times and i have to just go margie god bless brene or emma or marie or elizabeth or Oprah, whoever, you know, like that's their gifts. They're using their gifts and well done them. Get on with making the most of your gifts. Just are you doing that today? Because you just spent five minutes thinking about how you're not doing what they're doing. So, and some people are brilliant with technology and some people are, you know, we're, we're good at different things. So get on with your gifts. But for those who don't even know what their gifts are, it's probably because they've been looking over at everybody else going, oh, that person's so creative and that person's so funny and that person is so brilliant at writing or, I don't know, whatever the heck it is. And just recognising we all are uniquely gifted for something. And some people do seem to be more, they seem to, oh, my God, and they're running marathons, bitch, and they've got a share portfolio that's got a 20% return you know, whatever, you know, it's like, and we kind of, we, we make so many negative comparisons and then we don't even realize the way that people might be making that of us going, yeah, but you're this or you're that. And you're like, so just get on. And I wrote this in, in my previous book, make your mark on run your own best race, just run your own best race. But how do we find our gifts? Kind of getting back to your, your question is just sitting down sometimes and thinking, what is it that people come to you for? You know, what are the things that, um, what is it that you love doing? What is it that when you were young, you loved doing? Because maybe it's been neglected because society didn't value it. Um, and, and looking at where we find that, where's that intersection between what it is we have a natural, it may be a very unsharpened gift, I'll say that. So for me, say speaking, I had never spoken before. I didn't do, my school didn't even do debating, my little country school. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I know I have gifts of being, you know, speak. I, I really didn't know that. Um, I only started speaking because I was trying to get coaching clients. And actually then I discovered, you know what, I, I actually have a gift here. And I say that not with from a place of arrogance from, for those of us in Australia, I grew up, you know, don't ever be up yourself and don't brag. And it's not from that place of bragging. It's just I discovered that I was had a gift at connecting with people in that way. And it wasn't a very sharpened gift. It wasn't a very polished gift. It was pretty damn blunt, but that there was a gift there. And the more I've done it, the more I've polished that gift and sharpened that gift. And so for some people, we may have gifts and we don't even really recognize because we're just like, well, I can hardly do that. I'm like, yeah, because you haven't given it any time and you haven't invested time in that gift. You, you may have an incredible gift at something and you've dismissed it or you've derided it because you made a negative comparison. You know, you may have a gift at singing, but you went and compared yourself to Celine Dion and said, oh, I'm just nothing like that. And it's like, Maybe you're not supposed to be Celine Dion. Maybe you're no. supposed to be, you know, you I don't know, know someone else. We don't even think about the hours that, you know, a Celine Dion has put into it either. Like we, we spend an hour or two at it and we go, oh, I'm not that good. And they've spent 20,000 yeah, hours. Yeah, or creative people. And they say, oh, well, I'm not creative. And they look at, you know, I'm not into, I'm not, a, I'm not um, someone who spends a ton of time in, say, in the creative world of looking at people that are brilliant designers, for instance. Um, say George Jensen, oh, look how brilliant they are. I'm like, yeah, but he spent a lot of time becoming that or, or you name it, any fashion designer. They didn't start out being as good as they are, but we compare ourselves where we are now with where they are 20, 20 years in. Mm. Um, and so actually sometimes people will say to me, oh, you must get this too. Oh, Margie, you know, you're so good at this or whatever. And I'm like, what, what, what advice do you have for me? I'm like, just practice a lot. Just go and do it. Go and give a speech. Go and talk anywhere you can, as often as you can. Or anything just go and do it a lot and 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 yes look at people who are out there doing it notice the things you like but don't comp copy don't try and be someone else because 
none of us can be someone else. So then we become a B-rate version of them. Um, I think, and I, and I wrote about this in the book in that, you know, trusting in our gifts, trusting in, and even from a business for anyone who here is a small business owner or actually even in leadership roles, don't try and be like that leader. Notice the attributes of that person you admire and maybe try and embody some more of their attributes, but in your unique style. Because I, I found this even from a speaking, I'll see someone, I'm like, oh, they're so funny. But I'm not supposed to be, con- like, I'm not, I'm not, don't try and be, if, if maybe, imagine if Ellen DeGeneres tried to be Oprah or if someone else tried to be, you know, like, let them be them and you just be you. And, and if anything, just let them inspire you to be more yourself. Um, and I think I'm just trying to do that, Ellie. I'm trying to figure my a way through this. It doesn't mean I'm always perfect at it, but that's just some of the lessons I've learned. The more I have just been myself, the more opportunities and the things I want. But being myself in service of a cause greater than myself. I think if I was going to summarise it, I'd say that. How can we be ourselves in, a co- in, in service of a cause that's bigger than our egos and our pride and our desire to look good and impress and please and protect ourselves from people saying bad things about us and saying, oh, she's up herself or anything else. Um, and I think, yeah, if I was going to boil it all down, it's be yourself in, cause of, uh, in, in service of a cause greater than yourself. That's it. And when we lift beyond something that's uh, outside, you know, a bigger cause, then ego starts to drip away anyway. Yeah, it does. It does. On that. It does. One of, the, one of the things you wrote about in the book, and obviously you wrote this before the current uh, global pandemic, but it's, it's useful in this time, um, is that life is uncertain, but it is ripe with opportunity. Mm-hmm. We are obviously facing a huge amount of uncertainty and it's almost like each day, each week, we're getting another, whether it's a government notification or uh, plans have to change. What do you see are some of the opportunities that lay before us in this current time of global mm-hmm. uncertainty, whether that's on an individual basis? But what are some of those opportunities? Yeah, I think um, for some people, it's the, I think we have to look in ourselves first. Uh, I think right now a lot of people are feeling really ungrounded and we're going, shit, shit. A lot of the things that fed our sense of security have been ripped away for some people. And, uh, and so I think the number one thing we have to do right now is do our own inner work. But that doesn't mean we can't do that in parallel with also looking outside ourselves and going, well, how is it that I need to adapt or adjust or completely reinvent in order to be of value in the world. And I I like looking at things through the lens of value. What is the value that I have to bring? Um, How can I be of value? You know, looking out there at all the problems and all the needs, how can I be of value and how how can I add value? Um, given, given just digitally, right? We're all up, we're connecting, we're connecting in a digital virtual way a lot more. So for some people, it's like, get out of your own damn way and, and embrace technology. And so, oh, well, I don't like that. I've never wanted to do that. I'm like, I wouldn't know how to use Zoom. I'm like, well, learn it, learn Zoom, get out of your own way and learn Zoom. And so some people have got stories that are hemming them in from even seeing those opportunities. And that's why I say I think we have to start with ourselves because we get stuck in this. Um, so I had to go out this morning and get a blood test for antibodies. Um, I think I, I shared that at the start. And I had in Singapore at the moment, you have to wear a mask if you go outside. And I really don't want to wear a mask. I'm like, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want and actually Andrew said, honey, just get over yourself. Put the damn mask on. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, you know, Maggie, where is that? What, what's your story here that makes you so resistant to putting on this damn mask? You know, like, oh, I just don't want to wear a mask. I'm not someone who's scared of germs. I'm not fine. I never get sick. Da, da, da. And I was like, it's not about you. But it's like, like, anyway, I was just like, where am I? I share that and I throw myself under the bus there. I wore the damn mask. But I share that because where are we in our own little heads getting in our own way from even seeing the opportunities because it's like we go, well, I don't like doing that or I don't want to do that or that's not the kind of person that I am. Um, And so where are those opportunities? There is obviously, I cannot even even remotely fathom the, the enormity of the opportunities that are going to lay in this and from coming out the other side of this. 
in different realms, in communication, how we connect with each other and how we market and how we distribute in what people want and how they want it, um, in what matters, in the things we value and the things people may not value as much anymore. But I think we have to be extremely open-minded and this concept that I actually wrote about in, in my book, Stop Playing Safe, about learn, unlearn and relearn. And so often we are so attached to everything we think we know and this is how it is, this is how the world is, this is how I am. And that is just way too rigid. You do not know how the world is and how you think you are, that could be hemming you in. Maybe you need to be sitting in a lot more questions and let go of all those answers because the answers that you had are no longer going to cut it. And uh, so just be really curious. And I'm, I need to do that too, Ellie, because I love speaking. I love going to conferences. I, you know, I enjoy travel. Well, right now there's no planes, not many planes flying. There's no conferences on and who knows if there will ever be as many people coming together in large groups at the magnitude that there has been. And that's been what my, not that I kind of have a big, I don't actually have a business plan, but if I had one, it would be built a lot on me doing a lot of speaking. Well, what if there isn't that? So I'm like, huh, hmm, okay, interesting. So even for me, thinking more in virtual terms, I'm sure there will be some measure of that. I don't know what that looks like, but I just think we have to be really open-minded and not get in our own way with our own fixed mindset and false assumptions. I think there's going to be a huge amount of opportunities. I'm sitting here smiling when you when you talk about embracing technology or things that you haven't done before. My dad, who lives with us, he's got a granny flat down the back. He's the president of his Rotary Club. And tonight they are doing their first Rotary via Zoom. So he's had to have my kids teach him how to do Zoom, which is... That's cool. So cool. It's really, That is really, really cool. cool. Um, we are going to be moving up to, to wrapping up soon, but I want to do just really quick fire. You've you mentioned a couple of times being able to ground yourself. Do you have three practices that you yourself use in order to ground yourself? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, no, well, a couple of things I do. So I do a guided meditation in which I connect in and I literally imagine my feet grounding in, like my body is going into the ground beneath me. So there's like a visual element of me being grounded to the earth and even through breath connect because breath connects us to the present instead of being racing off and fear casting the future. So through through mindful breathing that helps to ground me secondly i journal a lot and, and you would have read that in the book i do a lot of journaling i journal that's a massive um a ritual for me that's really powerful and who do i want to be and what are the values i want to live by and asking my inner sage for advice you know what do you want me to know um so they, they're frankly my, my main two, but the third thing that I do that helps me connect in with, you know, who I want to be, frankly, is just taking some time out in nature too, just getting out. I love this morning, I, I went for a walk in here and it was hot and humid and I got right back sticky, but there's something about just being in nature that helps me find my place in the universe too and connects in to that. To me, that's a bit of a spiritual exercise, but connecting to that spirit that lives in me and around me and whether that's through being in nature, whether that's through music, sometimes reading something beautiful, nature's my number one go-to, but, but connecting in to something that's bigger than myself um, just helps me remember my place and, and grounds me. But, yes, so the breathing, the journaling, and connecting to whatever helps to ground me to something bigger. Uh, important at this time. And, and there's so many important messages from the conversations that we've had. I feel like we could kind of keep going or almost have a <laughs> weekly injection of, oh, that's right. <laughs> Just, it's going to be okay. Uh, but I do want to wrap this up with um, my final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Numerous years ago, Ellie, I used to use in my byline, you know, it's evolved over the years, but it was about um, I help people um, have outstanding success. I think I used that term and I, I, I let that go many years ago, but I used to say you cannot have an outstanding life unless you're willing to stand out. And that means unless you're willing to step away from the safety of the pack and the safety of the known and the safety of... Um, 
mass approval and and to put yourself out there in some way what does it mean and that takes courage putting yourself out there and so standing out to me is about having the courage to walk your own path and live your own truth and and heed whatever it is that tugs on your heart regardless of what everyone else is doing or what you know some people might say or you imagine what they might say. And to me, the truth of that is just being willing to live our own truth as bravely, as authentically, and as purposely as we can. Beautiful, Margie. It's been such a delight. I'm giving you a virtual hug from, from the Gold Coast of Singapore. We'll be able to give you a real one someday. One day. One yeah. day. It'll make it happen. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Ellie. I have been honoured to talk to you and share with all of your wonderful listeners. Take care.